You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Cory Doctorow is the author of the novels Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, Eastern Standard Tribe, and Someone Comes to Town, Someone Leaves Town. He's a blogger for boingboing.net, an activist who has worked with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. His new collection of short stories is Overclocked. We're going to have Corey read Print Crime, the entire story from his new collection. It appeared as the back page of Nature magazine. The coppers smashed my father's printer when I was eight. I remember the hot cling film in a microwave smell of it, and Dawes' look of ferocious concentration as he filled it with fresh goop and the warm, fresh-baked feel of the objects that came out of it. The coppers came through the door with truncheons swinging, one of them reciting the terms of the warrant through a bullhorn. One of Daz's customers had shopped him. The eye police paid in high-grade pharmaceuticals, performance enhancers, memory supplements, metabolic boosters. The kind of thing that cost a fortune over the counter. The kind of thing you could print at home, if you didn't mind the risk of having your kitchen filled with a sudden crush of big, beefy bodies, hard truncheons whistling through the air, smashing anyone and anything that got in the way. They destroyed Grandma's trunk, the one she'd brought home from the old country. They smashed our little refrigerator and the purifier unit over the window. My Tweety Bird escaped death by hiding in a corner of his cage as a big, booted foot crushed most of it into a sad tangle of printer wire. Da, what they did to him. When he was done, he looked like he'd been brawling with an entire rugby side. They brought him out the door and let the newsies get a good look at him as they tossed him in the car, while a spokesman told the world that my dad's organized crime bootlegging operation had been responsible for at least twenty million in contraband, and that my dad, the desperate villain, had resisted arrest. I saw it all from my phone, in the remains of the sitting room, watching it on the screen and wondering how, just how, anyone could look at our little flat and our terrible, manky estate and mistake it for the home of an organized crime kingpin. They took the printer away, of course, and displayed it like a trophy for the newsies. Its little shrine in the kitchenette seemed horribly empty. When I roused myself and picked up the flat and rescued my poor, peeping Tweety Bird, I put a blender there. It was made out of printed parts, so it would only last a month before I'd need to print out new bearings and other moving parts. Back then, I could take apart and reassemble anything that could be printed. By the time I turned 18, they were ready to let Da out of prison. I'd visited him three times, on my 10th birthday, on his 50th, and when my ma died. It had been two years since I'd last seen him, and he was in bad shape. A prison fight had left him with a limp, and he looked over his shoulder so often it was like he had a tick. I was embarrassed when the minicab dropped us off in front of the estate, and tried to keep my distance from this ruined, limping skeleton as we went inside and up the stairs. Laney, he said as he sat me down, you're a smart girl, I know that. Trig, you wouldn't know where your old dad could get a printer and some goop. I squeezed my hands into fists so tight, my fingernails cut into my palms. I closed my eyes. You've been in prison for ten years, da. Ten years. You're going to risk another ten years to print out more blenders and pharma, more laptops and designer hats? He grinned. I'm not stupid, Laney. I've learned my lesson. There's no hat or laptop that's worth going to jail for. I'm not going to print none of that rubbish. Never again. He had a cup of tea, and he drank it now like it was whiskey, a sip, and then a long, satisfied exhalation. 
He closed his eyes and leaned back into his chair. Come here, Laney. Let me whisper in your ear. Let me tell you the thing I decided when I spent ten years in lockup. Come here and listen to your stupid da. I felt a guilty pang about ticking him off. He was off his rocker. That much was clear. God knew what he went through in prison. What, da? I said, leaning in close. Laney, I'm going to print more printers. Lots more printers. One for everyone. That's worth going to jail for. That's worth anything. When I read that story, my first thought was that this is a story that really has a mathematical basis to it. It's really an N plus one story. Tell, tell me a little bit about how math informs your fiction. Wow, how math informs my fiction. Well, I guess that story isn't so much based on math as it is maybe engineering. The idea that bits aren't going to get any harder to copy. Um, I, I, I started thinking about how bits were or weren't hard to copy a little while ago. And I had this realization that today, this day, bits are harder to copy than they will ever be again. That tomorrow hard drives will be more capacious and cheaper and smaller, and networks will be more ubiquitous and easier to get logged onto and faster and cheaper, and that there's just never going to be a moment, barring some kind of nuclear holocaust or other, you know, world-ending disaster, at which point it doesn't matter whether or not we can copy bits anymore, in which it's ever going to get harder. And so, to the extent that there are people out there who are arguing about how hard bits should be to copy, it's like arguing about how hard gravity should suck us to the earth, right? It just doesn't make any sense. It's time to start arguing about what we do when everything is copyable, what we do in three years when every, uh, every song ever recorded can fit on a hard drive that you can buy for $100, what we do in 10 years when every movie ever made, every TV show ever made, every video ever shot, every home movie and everything else can fit onto a hard drive that costs $100, or in 15 years when we can store all the pictures and all the movies and all the songs and every word ever spoken and every word ever printed and all the books and all the articles and all the paintings and all the genomes on a hard drive that costs $100 and fits in your pocket. And what we do in, say, 25 years when that hard drive isn't $100, when it's $3 and it's the size of a sugar cube and you power it up by giving it a good hard shake and you, you give them to people for Christmas. Right? That's, I think, the thing to start arguing about is how do we live in that world, not how do we keep it from coming to pass. Because when you put it that way, it sounds like a pretty cool world to inhabit. Another theme that this brings up that I think is really interesting in your works is the theme of ubiquity. Mm -hmm. You're very interested in technologies. It almost doesn't matter which technology. What matters is how much of it there is and how common it, it is. Tell me a little bit about how you think about the ubiquity of technology. Well, you know, nothing exceeds like excess. Um, having, um, having lots and lots of something really changes the way we look at it. And we, we live in a world of, of uh, drowning plenty. Uh, there was an article last year in The Guardian uh, about how British charity shops can't sell T-shirts cheaply enough to compete with the t-shirts that you get three for five pounds at Tesco's now that, they've, that they're importing them cheap from China. And so they're sending them abroad to charity shops in Africa who are being so flooded by them that it's ending the local textiles industry. I mean, we are, we are in some ways drowning in waste product. But at the same time, um, there are some goods whose ubiquitousness uh, doesn't cause what we think of traditionally as pollution. And those goods are knowledge goods. 
Um, we have more knowledge goods than we've than we've ever had before, and more ready access to them. But there is another kind of shortage in a world of, of ubiquitous and plentiful knowledge goods, and that's a shortage of attention. And this is something that I've wrestled with a lot in my work and and uh, in my writing, uh, both. And um, you know, I know at this point about more things that I want to click on than I will have a chance to click on between now and the day that I die, right? The universe of things that's one click away is larger than the universe of things that I can explore. And that doesn't even get to the things that are two clicks away because you have to buy them before you can look at them, or you have to register before you can look at them, or you have to they, you have to stream them from the NPR site because they won't let you download them. Uh, you know, that, that universe of two-click stuff is even bigger and I'll probably never explore it because why waste one of those clicks that I could that I could be using on one of those one click things that's already bigger than I can explore. One thing about this kind of ubiquitous technology, different technologies lend themselves to different kinds of government, which is itself of course a technology. And what made me think about this was when I talked to Amir Oxel, one of the things he said was that um, the reason that were more interested in economics these days is because once the Soviet Union collapsed, the command economy kind of just went, was proved to not be very effective. Mm -hmm. And so with capitalism and the natural gainer, we all have to kind of look, start to look at capitalism and really start to think about it because it's really a part of our everyday lives. But in part, that's because of the kind of technology that we have right now. It's really, it lends itself to capitalism. It's somebody, it's, difficult to make cars and there can only be so many and there's a, a profit and loss when you have ubiquitous technologies that mm -hmm. are small and easily portable they lend themselves to a different kind of government model and you talk about that in one of the stories in your new collection overclocked where you have the um it's irobot where you have two completely different countries uh, Mm -hmm. that approaches to the same technology. Tell, tell us a little bit about that story. So iRobot is a, is a mashup of, um, of Isaac Asimov and, and George Orwell. It's about a world in which Asimov's dream of there only being one kind of positronic brain, that is to say one kind of computer, and only one company that's allowed to make them has been realized. But I think in order to realize that world, you kind of have to have a totalitarian state. Computers are in many ways defined as those things that we can modify ourselves. That's been their great strength. It, it wasn't that someone somewhere, some central Politburo, came up with all the conceivable ways that we might use computers to entertain and enrich ourselves and saw to it that one computer was made for each of those uses and deployed them into the marketplace. Instead, these fantastic, protean, hackable objects were delivered into the hands of everyday people who were then delivered the tools to modify them and to use them as they saw fit. You know, the, the, the first Apple II Pluses came with schematics, for Christ's sake. Um, and that has meant that we have individually been able to fill every conceivable niche like an ecosystem, like a marketplace. And that isn't what I think you see in the Asimov world, nor is it, I think, where we're headed in a world where we have things like Vista, uh, Microsoft's new operating system, that constrains what you can do with it to be sure that you're not doing something that will undermine the business model of one of the entertainment industry consortia that is Microsoft's partner in designing Vista, the Motion Picture Association and the Recording Industry Association, the, basically the mafia, who've, who've um, cajoled Microsoft into designing an operating system that can only do some things and that can't be modified to do others. 
and to, to go from that, that protean device to a, to a, a fixed device, a brittle device. And on the other side of the world, in this, in this Orwellian world where there's only one kind of computer allowed, is Eurasia. And in Eurasia, they have gone through what, what science fiction writers call the singularity. Their computers have achieved human-like intelligence because there was no constraint on how they could behave. And Eurasia has become a kind of global superpower, but a benevolent one, in that they refuse to go in and crush the United North American trading sphere, the UNATS, um, which is where we all live. Instead, they've opted to um, to uh, uh, engage UNATS in a long, drawn-out war in which their info material is uh, deliberately allowed to be captured by the other side. And when it's captured, it flips into propaganda mode and explains and extols the virtues of living in Eurasia to try and convince its scientists to defect. So that was kind of the that's the the premise of iRobot. And it was a fun story to write. It was nominated for the Hugo Award last year, which was very flattering. And I feel like um, it does what science fiction, good science fiction, is supposed to do, I hope, which is that it predicts the present. Um, it tells you a little story about what's going on in the world today. You have two camps, really. You have the camp that says what we need to do is have maximal control to be sure that what we do now doesn't upset what we used to do yesterday. And we have another camp that says, with minimal control and maximal self-help and self-determination, we'll invent a better tomorrow. Yochai Benkler wrote a really good book called um, The Wealth of Networks, in which he posits that we have a new mode of industrial production that's been born out of the free and open source software movement and the kind of convergence culture that we see arising on the internet, this cooperative culture. It's not communism, it's not capitalism, and it's not charity. It's a kind of um, collective behavior where people collaborate with such low transaction costs that they might as well be working on their own, except that, it's, except that the fruit of their labor is magnified through the collaboration with others. So a, a, a bone-simple example of that is Google, which goes around and counts every link that you and I and anyone else who writes the web makes between two websites. And the websites that are most linked to on the internet are thought of as the most authoritative by Google. And the, the ones that are less linked to are considered less authoritative. Basically, Google is using all of our labor as a collective means of determining the shape of the internet. And you and I and everyone else who ever made a link collaborated with each other to design the internet's shape without ever knowing it, without knowing about anyone else and without intending to. This notion of predicting the present is a really interesting one it, because the present, right now, there's so much technology happening. The change is happening so fast that we really can't, nobody can comprehend what's going on. So you can effectively write science fiction about the present that that somebody doesn't know about. It, and you'll look at it and say, well, that's, that's science fiction, but somebody over there is actually doing that. Well, you know, I, I'm still trying to get my head around what it means to predict the present. But I, th I, I just was in New York, and I went to the Evolution Store in, in Soho, which is this anthropology store. And while I was there, I bought an axe head that's 200,000 years old. And they had other axe heads. They had ones that were 100,000 years old, and they had ones that were 300,000 years old. And the only way to tell the difference was the dig site and, you know, carbon dating, that kind of thing. Because otherwise, these things were indistinguishable from one another. There was a 300,000-year span of human history, 200,000-year span of human history, during which technology didn't change, right? The, the technological activities we engaged in were the same from generation to generation. And while they had a tomorrow, they probably didn't have a future, 
right? It was probably the same every day, which means that the future was probably our first serious invention, right? We, we invented the future at some point. Some lunatic, you know, looked around and said, you know, these aren't just axe heads. This is the dot axe revolution. There's going to be an axe in every cave any day now. We'll have bigger axes, better axes, axes that are so ubiquitous we won't even we won't know what to do with them. There'll be a the, the market for axes can't be stopped. We will have a long boom of axes, right? Well, they were right. They were right. Um, that invention was pretty formidable, and since then our relationship to the future has had a lot of different contours and a lot of different uh a lot of different a lot of different faces um you know i think of the lapsarian future you know the judeo-christian future the idea that we came out of the garden and that every year since we've become less perfect and that we're rolling downhill towards armageddon this lapsarian view it's it's really dismal i have a friend who's uh, orthodox who once explained to orthodox jew and he explained to me that in his tradition no rabbi is allowed to overturn a decision of a rabbi who came in a generation before him because by definition the rabbis of this generation being further from the garden than the rabbis of the generations gone by no less are less good than their predecessors so you can interpret but you can't overturn and then you have a kind of progressivist agenda right the the henry ford agenda the the dot-com agenda the idea that that technology will become better and better Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland is. We'll come back to Tomorrowland because there's boy, there's a lot in Tomorrowland. And then there's the, and then there's Armageddonists who are about the end of history, right? The idea that tomorrow will stop, and and sort of a sub genre of that is is what Orwell talks about in 1984, the end of history, but not the end of humanity. The idea that human that history just freezes, and I think Huxley writes about this too. And then you have the singularity. And the singularity is a, a truly uh, unique invention in that it is both apocalyptic and progressive. Things will get so good that we'll actually burst, right? They, they won't be able to get any more good. We'll just pop in delight with ourselves and our cleverness. Um, and, and, you know, that kind of futurism is a really new thing. And I think that it expresses, expresses something about our generation, that Tomorrowland. There's a ride in Tomorrowland uh, in Disney World called uh, the Carousel of Progress. Carousel of Progress. Boy, we love the Carousel of Progress. Yeah. So it opened in 1964 at the New York World's Fair, and it was sponsored by GE. And you would go in, and you would sit in this theater, um, and you would revolve around a stage. And each time you revolved about 60 degrees, you'd see another little set piece about uh, some point in our technological history and what our, and how technology was improving us. And the original narration said, it seems like at every turn, there's always been someone saying, turn back, turn back, but progress only turns forward. And when you were done, you got off the carousel of progress and you walked through progress land, which was a huge diorama of a city of tomorrow. And the mother and father who narrated the, um, the, the show took you on a tour of progress land they said um you know getting around is a breeze now that our downtown core is totally enclosed by a glass dome g calls it a climate controlled environment but mother calls it a sparkling jewel and to our left is our most welcome neighbor our g nuclear power plant and so on and so forth so it closed there and then about 10 years later it opened in disney world in florida and they um they changed the show uh the original song 
was there's a great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end end of of every day." day right they changed the song to now is the time now is the best time now is the best time of our life right disney's always had a hard time keeping up with tomorrow you know you basically you get you get tomorrow on the drawing board and before you break ground it's yesterday um and so i guess what they figured in the 70s was well we'll celebrate today right it's futuristic enough we practically have jetpacks people wear white bell bottoms it's like the future but that didn't last in fact not long thereafter they shut the show back down again and reopened it with the original song there's a great big beautiful tomorrow but they changed the action so that in each sequence the technology failed in some way and was the butt of a joke so something something went wrong and they got a, a yuck or two out of it and around that time they changed all of tomorrowland they tore it down and they rebuilt it not to look futuristic but to look retro they reopened it to look like a jules verne steampunk turn of the 20th century uh, uh retro futuristic french brass uh uh you know gilded age thing and um and it's bizarre because it's like a complete surrender we can't we can't keep track of today we can't keep track of tomorrow we can't keep track of yesterday so what we're going to do is is try to imagine some tomorrow as some naif of a hundred years ago might have imagined it and celebrate tomorrow as a kind of irony dripping kitsch artifact as opposed to something that's meant to inspire or take us forward and tomorrowland is so incoherent now it just doesn't make any sense it's got the wedway people mover or the people crusher as those in the know call it because it squishes people sometimes but it, it's it's also got the um it's also got a, is the a monsanto pizza parlor. shrink ride back no that's gone oh. long gone oh that was my favorite ride. that was a hell oh, of a ride yeah that. Uh, but it's got star tours and it's got um, uh, uh, it's got a Buzz Lightyear shoot 'em up and it's got just all kinds of random junk. It's got a, a soundstage where uh, they do high school musical outtakes and it just and a thing where you can train to become a Jedi. It's it's kind of um, last year's Skiffy Land. Uh, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Let's talk a little bit about science fiction because when you talk about predicting the present, it made me think of something about science fiction. It, the genre is kind of insulated and insular and almost inbred to a certain extent. Occasionally you get infusions by, for example, most recent one that was well accepted was Cormac McCarthy's The Road. And The Road bears some no small resemblance to your story, When Sysadmins Fooled the Earth. Hmm. Um, but one thing that interests me about science fiction, it's very much concerned with the future, but at this point in, and back in the the 30s, 40s, and 50s, that made sense because there wasn't a lot of technology in the past. But now, I mean, we've got a lot of technology. We have a lot of history of technology. And I'm wondering if you have any idea why science fiction writers don't go back and write about the first internet worm. I I mean, there's a lot of, it seems to me there's a lot of technology, a lot of science fiction that could be set in the past. Well, I I think Neil Stevenson's beat you to it, right? He just wrote a science fiction novel about Isaac Newton discovering calculus, right? It's a hell of a science fiction novel. It's the Baroque trilogy. The Baroque trilogy, yeah. I mean, it's it's like an entire forest's worth of book. And it's a a damn good book about, about, you know, the, the race between Leibniz and Newton and and the calculus i mean that's i think that you're right i think they're well so i think that 
the big difference between the science fiction writers of the golden age and the science fiction writers of today is that the science fiction writers of today, if they're honest with themselves, know that they're never writing about the future. Instead, they're writing about the present. That what they're doing is writing about how we today deal with the fact that the world is changing, not what we think the world might change into. That they're reflecting our fears and hopes, not our predictions. Whereas the science fiction writers of the past appear to have in some instances been earnest, right? Heinlein and his future histories and so on, earnestly attempting to tell you what he thought the future was going to be like. You learn a lot more about the America that Heinlein lived in by reading Heinlein than you will about the, the America that we live in today by reading Heinlein. Because Heinlein was a keen observer of his milieu, he just wasn't very good with his crystal ball. None of us really are. Well, this gets to futurology. It's like science fiction writing, but with a better paycheck. <laughs> yeah. And I'm curious how you feel about what's the difference between futurology and science fiction? I think the biggest difference is science fiction writers admit that they're making it up. Um, apart from that, I don't think that there's... A, and, and science fiction writers try to give you the frisson of futureness that maybe futurists don't try to do. Futurists try to try to take the future and 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 lay it out on the table and open its chest cavity and pin it back and drape a drape a, a, a cloth over its genitals and so on and 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 just try to try to sanitize it as much as possible. And I think science fiction writers, if they're doing their job when they write about the future, they write about it in its glorious psychedelic weird and unknowableness, and not not as a not try to make something quotidian and and uh, and dull out of it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about reading technology. There's a lot of reading um, that people do. They do it on the web these days. I, and I'm wondering what, how you feel where reading technology is going. We've got e-readers. We've got e-books. People can send around manuscripts. And you've done some interesting experiments by giving away. Mm -hmm. You give away your books on your website, craphound.com. We can go and get any of your books downloaded. Mm -hmm. How's that working out for you? Well, it's working out pretty good. You know, Tim O'Reilly, the, the great uh, technology publisher, he says that the problem for most authors isn't piracy, it's obscurity. And that's certainly my, my case. I, I feel like um, giving away books sells books all day long. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. The first is that um, giving away books is inherently social. Copying books is an inherently social activity. Uh, we don't really worry about the non-social copies, right? When you back up your hard drive, no one worries about copyright law. But when you give a copy of something to someone else, well, that's when we, that's when we start to, to think about what's going on. Well, but you giving a copy to someone else is like you endorsing me, right? It's like you pimping me. It's like you evangelizing me to your friends. And there's a tiny minority for whom getting a free electronic book displaces the sale. And there's a slightly minor larger minority for whom getting a free electronic book creates a sale. And then there's a much larger majority for whom getting a free electronic book neither creates nor displaces a sale because they never would have bought it and they still don't and they, they uh, and they don't want to after they've read it electronically either. The idea of an ebook reader, a dedicated ebook reader, is, I think, deeply flawed, and I'm incredibly skeptical about this uh, about this technology. And I've I've you know heard so many that people have used the inevitability of a special purpose Walkman for books as an argument for so much bullshit that I I I feel like it's time that someone started actively puncturing this dumb pipe dream. We say that we don't like to read long-form works off a screen, or we say that we don't like to read off screens, 
And that's patently untrue. Um, we read off screens all day long. Everyone who's ever told me how much he doesn't like reading off a screen had just come off from reading off a screen for hours and hours and hours and hours on end. It's like someone telling you how much he hates chocolate while he shovels ding-dongs into his mouth, right? So we do read off screens, but we Many don't. Many people do that. Well, it's true. And they're nuts, <laughs> right? Um, uh, you know, this is this is pretty close to the formal definition definition of crazy, right? To sit there and insist that you don't like doing something as you do it. So we like reading off screens. We just don't read long-form works off of screens. And I've been wondering a lot about why we don't do it. And I've concluded that it's because the computer is a distraction medium. That computers want to distract you every 10 to 30 seconds with an IM, an email, a web page, something you can Google, an RSS item that's just come up, another solid hand of solitaire, something you forgot that you need to add to your to-do list, and so on and so forth and so on. Computers want you to do lots of things at once with them. That's the kind of in the nature of multitasking on a computer. And because of that, it's really hard to read a long form work on a computer. We can kind of concentrate on shorter works, and we can concentrate a long work long enough to know that we want to go out and buy a book. Now, you may can imagine that someone might bring out a Walkman for books that was special purpose, single purpose, that could only be used to read books. And I can imagine such a thing occurring. But I can't imagine such a thing becoming a great seller because it will be competing with devices that not only read books, but also play video games and music and act as phones and can be used as word processors and cameras and so on. And sitting there holding these two devices, one in one hand, one in the other, one is $200, the other is $200, but one includes the camera, the phone, the games and everything else, it's just not going to, the, the single purpose device just won't sell. So I think that ultimately this is what challenges reading books on screens. Now, that isn't to say that we won't continue to read books. I think we will. Um, reading books in codex form has always been a minority activity, something that weird uh, paper perverts like me and you have done. And the majority of our cousins and friends don't. And we continue to read for reasons that are totally emotional and visceral and that have nothing to do with the technology around us. And we will continue to read. And in the meantime, owning a print book and owning an ebook adds value to both. It's better than owning just one or the other because the print book lets you do things like search through it and find the, the quotes that you want to add into your article or the electronic book, rather, and the print book is great to take along when you're on the bus. And then the ebook is great to read when you're, uh, when you're standing in a queue and you forgot to bring a book at all, but you do have 800 books on your phone, right? These complement each other so deeply, and, and they're so social, they so, they so much beg you to share them with your friends, that I think this is ultimately good news for those of us who make a living selling codices. Let's talk about your new book. Mm -hmm. It's called Overclocked. I'd like you to explain what that means in technical terms, and then I'd like you to talk about what you're implying with that. Overclocking is uh, the process of turning up your computer's clock. This is the thing that determines how, um, how fast your computer runs. Turning it up faster than your computer is technically rated for, so that it, it tries to do more than it was intended to do at the factory, and runs faster and faster and faster and hotter and hotter and hotter. Um, people add new cooling systems to their computers to try and 
compensate for overclocking, but the the um, the uh, general effect of overclocking is to shorten the duty cycle of a computer, maybe from five years to three, or in extreme cases, just seconds. I mean, there are serious overclockers who, as a kind of pro forma exercise, will sometimes overclock their computers by, say, a factor of 50 or 100 while cooling it with liquid nitrogen. And as you can imagine, this has a deleterious effect on the components and ultimately uh, leads to the end of the computer. If you're lucky, you can boot it up for just long enough to take a screenshot of the process monitor showing that you are in fact running your 300 megahertz machine at you know a peta at a peta flop. Um, now, as to what that means, well, it means a couple of things. First, it means caffeinated. It means fast. It also means potlatchy. It means something that's intended to. Uh, be used up so fast because uh, you don't need it for its whole duty cycle. You would rather wear it out than, than, um, than try and stretch its life out. And I think that expresses how a lot of us feel about computers. Those of us who've been on the computer horse for a long time. I was talking to some of the architects of the Human Genome Project a little while ago, and they described their data center. It's divided into four quadrants, and each one is big enough to be the data center for the entire Human Genome Project. And in the first quadrant, they build a data center. And then when that starts to get a little long in the tooth, pretty much as soon as they open it, they start to build the second data center in the next quadrant, and then they run the two in parallel. And then just as soon as that second one opens, they start to build the third one in the third quadrant, and they run all three in parallel. And then just as soon as that one's built, they start to build the fourth one. And just as soon as that's built, they tear out the first one and start to build the fifth. And so on and so on, clockwise around the face, over and over again, because that's the fastest and best way to compute the whole human genome. Um, I was at a presentation this morning where someone said, how do you save 50% of your energy bill in your data center? Throw out all your computers from last year and buy this year's model. Um, I talked to someone who had a supercomputing application once who said that they did the math and the best way to solve this problem, the fastest and cheapest way, was to do nothing for five years, then buy computers. Because if they started buying computers now, the, the gains that they would get would be more than lost by the, by the budgetary limitations of buying the, the, the 8 or 10 or 16 times faster computers that would be on the market in, in five years. And so that was indeed the fastest and optimal way for them to solve their problem. That was the way that they get to the end of it fast as possible. And so this, I think, expresses something about our technological era. This idea that our devices outlast their their usefulness, and you know we see it all over the place. Um, we bring home our groceries in bags that we need to use once, but that will last for a hundred years. Um, but I also think that it says something about our our more uh, sophisticated technology, our computers, that they are obsolete so fast, and yet they're so vital to us when we get them, and they seem so incredibly powerful when we sit down with them. I know what you mean. I'm um, when I was working as a systems administrator, one of my last acts was to buy a huge four-processor Sun server. And by the time it, we got it all set up and configured, I mean, a year later, I bought a laptop that had as much memory and was as fast as the $50,000 thing that drove 10 workstations and they used to design VLSI chips. Wow. Yeah. I mean, just think about what a gigabyte of storage used to look like and what it looks like today. I remember my dad bringing home boxes of Holerith cards. And, you know, there's been a real change that has been evinced by this, this compacting and shrinking. Those Holerith cards, they, they each bore the legend, uh, do not bend, spindle, fold, or mutilate. And I remember students, you know, I, I didn't actually see this because I was too young. I only read about it in Mad Magazine. But I remember students writing on their cards, I am a human being. 
do not bend, spindle, fold, or mutilate me. There was a time when we thought of computers as being the thing that they used to count the dead at Auschwitz, the thing that they used to figure out who to arrest and who to round up and how to keep track of you. And these days, I think most of us think of computers as the thing that lets us evade scrutiny, the thing that lets us realize our dreams, actualize our vision, do the things that we want to do without asking some third party for permission. And that's all about shrinking a computer from a $50,000 box in your wiring closet that you need a priesthood of sysadmins and white coats to run to the, to the $2,000 laptop in your shoulder bag that's, that's cheap enough that you don't even bother to insure it half the time. Your new collection has a, a series of stories. I robot, I rowboat. You threatened to write I rare bit about uplifted cheese sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> we have uh, Anda's game, which is very reminiscent of another science fiction sure, title. Ender's game. Tell us a little bit about why you chose to do this and what you're doing. Well, so the initial impetus for this came when Ray Bradbury got very upset with Michael Moore for calling his movie Fahrenheit 9-11. And Bradbury, for reasons I don't entirely understand, is a Republican. And um, I think it has to do with the fact that he thinks George Bush, whatever his faults, will take us to Mars. Uh, but I'm not sure. And um, Bradbury said it was in rude. In pieces. Well, in pieces, maybe, yeah. But Bradbury said it was rude and wrong and that Michael Moore was a bad person for, for stealing the title of Fahrenheit 451 and making Fahrenheit 9-11. Now, this isn't a field in which it seems like, um, like, like uh, a, a, a formal exercise that every writer has to go through to write a novel called Nightfall, right? There must be 16 of them at this point in the field. Um, this, is, this is a field in which one of our most famous books, I, Robot, had its title stolen from another book, I, Robot, which in turn stole its title from I, Claudius. Um, and, and so this is a field in which this has never been the tradition. And it seemed to me that uh, someone who is a champion of free speech uh, going out and, and describing um, this free expression as, as wrong and rude, as opposed to engaging with the substance of Moore. I mean, you can agree or disagree with Moore all day long. I, I don't give a toss what Moore had to say. I care about whether or not he had the right to say it. Um, I think that that was incredibly ironic. So I set out to write all these stories that had the same titles as famous SF stories. But along the way, I found myself engaged in a different exercise, which is a kind of uh, reinterpretive exercise, an exercise about understanding what it was my literary forebears were up to when they were doing and, and, and what that stuff means today. And so I have iRobot and I have Anda's Game and Ben Rosenbaum and I are just finishing up a story if I ever get back to it. I've been a terrible correspondent called True Names. And I think the next one's going to be The Man Who Sold the Moon. And it's going to be a story about a computer entrepreneur who solves the year 10,000 problem. It's 8,000 years from now, and computers haven't changed at all. The future has ended. History is over. And we're just living the same tomorrow over and over again. But this guy invents the future. He takes his fortune from the year 10,000 problem and announces that man will go to the moon for the first time, having forgotten that we went to the moon. And when he gets there, he discovers the golf ball and has this kind of epiphany about what the future means and how temporary the future can be. Um, and so that's, that's, I think, the next one. And then somewhere along the lines, I want to write a Jeff Diaz 5. You just finished a new novel. Uh-huh. Tell us a little bit about it. We're, we want to we wanna know. Well, I just finished two novels just before Christmas. But, oh, really? Tell yeah. us well, about both of them then. So one of them 
uh, is a novel whose working title was Little Brother. Uh, I don't know what the final title is going to be. I, this morning in the shower, I came up with Homeland Security, but it was three in the morning, so that might not be a good title. Uh, and it's about hacker kids. It's a young adult adventure novel. It's about hacker kids who live in San Francisco, and the Bay Bridge is blown up by terrorists. And these kids get caught up in a, in a sweep where the, the Department of Homeland Security is looking for terrorists. And they're taken away. And because they're laid in all kinds of weird and dodgy gear and they can't really account for what they were doing, they're out playing an alternate reality game. Uh, a little like the, the games that people play around Lost or I Love Bees or, or um, uh, Tombstone Poker or any of those other big ARGs. Uh, they're up, because they can't really account for what they were doing and the people from the DHS don't understand what they were doing, they're, they're essentially tortured. They're interrogated with, with extreme prejudice and one of them is never released. And when they get out, they declare war on the DHS. And so every chapter explains the way that they make war on the DHS, the way that they show that the DHS's own security actually doesn't secure anything. It's just what Bruce Schneier calls security theater. It's a little puppet show about how secure we are. And it's both, to both intended to make us feel afraid, because why would we need this security if, if we weren't in danger, and safe. Because now that we've been given the security, we can tell that we're free or that we're, we're, we're free from risk. And that at each turn, we're being asked to yield liberty in the service of the security. But the security never actually makes us more secure, just less free. And um, every chapter explains in a discursive way that I think young adult novels are very good at um, how they go about defeating the security, beating a no-fly list or getting metal in through a metal detector, that kind of thing, um, in enough detail that, that the audience could do it to show you that if I can think of it, if a 17-year-old can do it, then Al-Qaeda can certainly do it. Um, and that if we're being asked to trade security for liberty, we should be sure that we're at least getting security. And if anyone can figure out how to break it, then it's not really worth it. Now, the other novel, again, it's all about working titles with me these days. Uh, that novel, was, the first third of it was syndicated on Salon. Uh, theme, theme punks. punks that's right. right. Uh, and it's a book about um, economic singularity, a book about a world where it becomes so cheap and easy to manufacture goods that it's, um, you don't need enough investment capital to soak up the world's supply of venture capital. Uh, you need $15,000, not $15 million. And it's profitable for six weeks, not six years, before competition beats it out of you and, and you have to go back to the drawing board and invent something else. And anyone can do it. There's a surplus of garages all around the country and people are just making stuff. And some wily venture capitalists buy up the last of Duracell and the last of Kodak uh, because no one will ever need film or batteries again. And they take their cash on hand, they liquidate it, and they deploy an, uh, a legion of barefoot bankers who crawl America's hinterlands looking for people with cool inventions to invest small sums of money in. And 20% of the American workforce picks up and moves into little co-ops, high-tech co-ops, to build these things. They call it the new work. It's like the new deal. And then because the market doesn't know how to value it and because it doesn't cost enough, because it can't soak up enough of the capital, it collapses. And in the wake of this collapse, two of its original progenitors, two of the heroes of this revolution, find themselves building a theme park ride to celebrate the glory days of the bubble. And that theme park ride becomes a flashpoint for a huge amount of, of uh, fights. Fights over access to 3D printers, fights over trademark, fights with the limping Disney Corporation and, and its theme park division, fights with people over biotech. Uh, one of the sub-themes of this novel is that obesity has been cured using a dodgy Russian biotech technique called Fatkins. 
that overclocks your metabolism to 15,000 calories a day irreversibly so that everyone who gets this treatment has to has to thereafter source 15,000 calories a day worth of high fructose corn syrup and other slurry that they can guzzle back because it's very expensive to find yourself 15,000 high quality calories a day and this becomes a kind of national crisis of sybaritic sugar infused buff ex shut in uh, uh, shag freaks who crawl the nation uh, um, having hookups and dogging um, so that book was just finished as well, and I'm not sure what that title is going to be. I'd like to talk to you about DRM. One thing about it, it's the stand for digital rights management. So I'd like you to tell us both what why you're so interested in it. I mean, um, it's it's an ideology with you, and, and ideologies are kind of dangerous. I mean, mm-hmm. so tell us why why you've taken this one. Well, I'll tell you what the ideology is that underpins this. The ideology is that the difference between a utopia and a dystopia is whether computers control you or computers enable you, whether computers take orders from you or whether they give you orders. And DRM, digital rights management or digital restrictions management, the anti-copying, anti-use stuff that's built into DVDs and the new high-definition DVDs and TiVos and other set-top boxes and so on, are predicated on the idea that the computer that you own, the hardware that belongs to you, should, at least some of the time, follow policy that's set by remote parties and not by you. Now, as a science fiction writer, I'm often frustrated by movies, particularly, where spaceships turn out to have self-destruct buttons that someone always inevitably pushes by accident. And I wonder to myself, what engineer decided that what this spaceship needs more than anything else is a button that causes it to explode? Right? As an engineer, I would think that it would be better if you just didn't put the explode button in at all. And to me, building computers and other devices that are used to control their owners instead of enabling their owners, that can be used to enforce policy against the owner of the device without the owner's knowledge or consent, is an inherently dangerous thing. As computers creep into more and more of our life, as they govern more and more of what we do, the idea that we should lose control over them, that they should be able to control our actions instead of the other way around, is to me totally bonkers and really mistakes what it is that has made computers so great today. As I said before, no apparat, no central committee sat down and designed all the internet applications we would ever need and deployed them to us. Instead, the network evolved those themselves through a billion entrepreneurs, a billion authors, filling a billion niches, each one just as big as it needed to be to scratch that own person's itch. And that's what's given us the incredible robustness and diversity of the internet. People may get on the internet because everyone else is there, but the reason that they stay is because they find something that's just about them. And that's because the internet has something that's specifically for everyone. And I think that that's all about that flexibility and fluidity and about not letting some central party design and control your computer. One thing that's interesting to me is the the format wars we're seeing. We we saw this about 20 years ago with the Betamax and the VHS. Mm -hmm. And right now we're seeing the same kind of war between Blu-ray and and HDDV. One of the big drivers in that is the pornography industry. Mm. So uh, I'd like you to talk about the the influence that that this uh, kind of black market, nobody wants to talk about mm. it, industry has that's so powerful over our technology. Well, so first, I think I want to dispute the idea that we're having the same kind of format war that we had between um, with, with uh, beta and VHS. I think that this is actually a totally different ballgame. 
I think that there are, broadly speaking, two kinds of DRM. DRMs that are designed by one company and DRMs that are designed by a consortia of companies. So why would a company put DRM in its products? It's not as though you can sell products by putting on the box now with fewer features. No one woke up this morning and said, I think instead of stealing my music today, I'll buy it. After all, that way I can do less with it, right? Um, we, we are not, uh, um, by nature, people who seek out technologies that control us and lock us down. So there's only really one good reason for a company to build this kind of DRM in it on their own, and that's because they think that they'll be able to lock users in. So take, for example, the iPod. Every time you spend 99 cents on an iTunes music store song, you increase the value of your iPod, or rather increase the cost of getting rid of your iPod by the 99 cents it will cost you to replace that song if you wanted to listen to it on a device that didn't come from Apple. Because iTunes store music only plays on Apple's iPod. Now Steve Jobs just gave this statement where he said, oh, if the music industry would only let me, I'd get rid of DRM. That's a little as Ed Felton says, like a kid saying, well, if my parents don't make me, I won't go to the dentist. Of course, Steve Jobs will do whatever the music industry tells him to do. It's, this is hardly a, a, a tough promise for him to make. But at the end of the day, the fact is that if you spend 100 bucks on music for your iPod and you decide to replace it with a $150 device from a competitor like, say, Creative Labs, you've got to add to that $150 switching costs another $100 in the cost of abandoned music. So that's why Apple does DRM. But there's another kind of DRM, and that's the kind of DRM that's done by a consortium of more than one company, usually by a big group of companies. And these are made by companies that are losing the DRM wars, right? Companies who don't have the lion's share of DRM. And the reason that they all get together to cooperate is because the studios lure them with promises of getting preferential licensing, licensing if they will form an interoperability consortium that will make a DRM that lots of different people, lots of different companies can use. Now, these consortia inherently are more fragile than individual companies. Steve Jobs is Steve Jobs. What he says goes. Edgar Bronfman Sr. was able to go to Switzerland and get the Nazi gold back. Edgar Bronfman Jr. went to Cupertino on behalf of Warner Music, and he couldn't get Steve Jobs to let him charge $1.50 for a Britney Spears song. Right? Steve Jobs laughed him out of the room. He said, all music costs 99 cents, period, end of story. If you don't like it, yank our licenses. Let's see how much music you sell if it won't play on the world's number one music player. Now get lost. Right? So that's, that's a strong negotiating position. When you have five or six companies that hate each other's guts trying to cooperate on a proprietary platform that they can all use... The studios have got a lot of leverage in them, and I've seen this in the DRM standards meetings. They play them off one against the other, and what you end up with is a kind of race to the bottom. Who will offer up the worst product? Who will offer up the product that customers are least likely to want to buy that are as restrictive as possible? And that firm, that consortium, that competitor gets the largest licenses, the best licenses from the studios. The big difference between, say, DVD HD and the original DVD standard is that the original DVD standard, it would have hurt the studios if it failed, right? It would have cost them money too, but not so anymore. DVD HD and DVD Blu-ray, um, the uh, UMD and uh, Amazon Unbox and all these other video on demand and DRM video services, 
they've managed to externalize the risk for all of these services to other companies. If these companies fail in their DRM, the studios just find someone who adds one more quantum of liberty to their specification in the hopes that that will turn out to be the minimum that the public will accept. Because you see, you can't tell the public to take something that's more restricted than what they're used to. But what you can do is start with something that's very restrictive and then add little bits of liberty to it until you find the, some, the thing that's, that is the, the, the least worst that the public will accept. So I think that's what's going on in the DRM standards war, and that's what DVD HD and DVD Blu-ray are about. Now as to pornography, I used to think like you do, that, that pornography leads technology. But I think that there's a more general purpose way of looking at this, and this comes from my friend John Gilmore, who uh, helped found EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And John, when I put this to him, he said, no, I think that what happens is that the kind of speech or expression that is most repressed or restricted in the mainstream world will always migrate first to a new platform because the speech wants to get out. Right? It's not that information wants to be free, but people want to express themselves and they'll try to find the next platform. They'll try to move there before the restrictions move in. Tell us what a EULA is and why it's so scary. So a EULA is the end user license agreement. This is the fine print that comes with every piece of software these days and sometimes with your car or your GPS or your phone or anything else that you own. And um, EULAs, they, they're, they're, they're kind of an infectious disease that, um, that uh, uh, infects companies with almost without human intervention, like MySpace had this crazy EULA that said that all the music that you put on it belonged to MySpace. And Billy Bragg read this thing and he was like, oh my God, can you believe this? Rupert Murdoch has turned himself into the world's least discriminating, most ambitious hoarder of garage band music. How has this happened? And when you actually look at what happened at that EULA and you look at where, where it originated, it looks like the founders of MySpace put it on the website right from the earliest days, long before they had a lawyer, and that in fact they copied it pretty much verbatim from another service, probably without ever reading it. Nor did Rupert Murdoch's lawyers seem to have read it when they put $600 million down for that service. These things just seem to self-replicate. So I've written my own EULA. Um, read carefully. By accepting this material, you agree, on behalf of your employer, to release me from all obligations and waivers arising from any and all non-negotiated agreements, licenses, terms of service, shrink wrap, click wrap, browse wrap, confidentiality, non-disclosure, non-compete, and acceptable use policies that I have entered into with your employer, its partners, licensors, agents, and assigns, in perpetuity, without prejudice to my ongoing rights and privileges." You further represent that you have the authority to release me from these agreements on behalf of your employer. The idea here is to highlight just how silly it is to be able to say, tag, you agree. Guess what? That car that you just bought, you've agreed to a whole ton of other stuff in addition to it. Generally speaking, the things that you're being asked to agree to are things that waive your consumer rights, your statutory rights that you get simply by making a purchase. But if all it takes to take away the rights that you get by making a purchase is to write something down when you buy it, that by buying this you waive your rights that you get to your purchases, then it, it kind of makes a mockery of the idea of having rights at all. Uh, it's not as though we get to negotiate these things. I think ultimately agreement is where civilization starts. Civilization starts when you and I agree that we're going to crap over here and eat over there, and no one's going to reverse that order. 
And if all it takes to form an agreement is to say, by standing there, shaking your head, shouting, no, 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 I don't agree under any circumstances, you agree that I'm allowed to come over to your house and wear your underwear and make some long-distance calls and clean out your fridge and punch your grandmother, then it's like we can't even have a social contract, right? If we can't have contracts, we can't have the social contract. So I think it's time that we sort of stemmed this tide of idiocy and started to fight back and say, I don't agree. Screw you. Here's my sticker that says, I don't agree. Read this carefully. I don't agree. And I'm going to put it on every, um, every uh, uh, credit card slip I sign, uh, my business cards. I'm going to put it on everything. Uh, actually, um, with some friends, made up some stickers that you can, you can buy on the internet at reasonableagreement.org or make your own. Put it in your SIG files. Print it on the back of your business card. Let's make sure that it gets out there. I'd like to talk to you about two organizations, MPAA and the RIAA. Mm-hmm. These are some folks who have some really peculiar notions about how to treat their customers. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd like you to tell me what you've discovered in, in, in dealing with them and, and how you feel that are, are they doing themselves any favors? Well, so it's funny. I, I like to say that every pirate who becomes successful decides to become an admiral. And I think that no better example can be found than the Recording Industry Association and the Motion Picture Association. Motion pictures were invented in New Jersey by the Edison by, by the Edison Company, and Thomas Edison controlled all the patents on them. He controlled what kind of movies you could make, how many movies you could make, where you could exhibit them, who could develop the film, and so on. Now, he had a real stranglehold on films, and as a result, people who wanted to make real movies decided to leave New Jersey and come pretty much to Mexico, Hollywood, where they could make movies so far from Edison's patent agents that it would be really hard for them to, to catch up with them, to try and ding them for royalties, shut them down, or sue them. Right? So Hollywood is founded by pirates. The same kind of thing happened with the recording industry. The recording industry started by taking uh, sheet music that had been composed by the only thing that we had that resembled a music industry of the day, which was composers, Tin Pan Alley, and recording those songs without permission, without payment, and just sticking them out there on piano rolls and then on discs and cylinders and making them available to the general public for a profit. John Philip Sousa, the American composer, went to Congress in 1909 and he said, if these infernal talking machines are allowed to continue, we will lose our voice boxes as we lost our tails when we came down out of the trees. Um, And the recording industry's response, the head of the recording industry's response was, if you would protect the artist, first protect the inventor. Right, so that was the attitude of the recording industry back in 1909. Today, the recording industry's position is no one should be allowed to invent something that upsets the way that we earn our living. Now, that's not to say that either the motion picture industry or the recording industry does much for actual working artists. Um, They protect the companies that invest, but not the artists that create. Um, For example, take iTunes and digital music sales in general. Generally speaking, when you buy something, you get a whole bunch of rights to it, including things like the right to sell it or give it away. When you buy a song from iTunes or the Microsoft Music Store, you can't give it away. You can't sell it. You can't loan it. It's uh, tied to you. And the way that the industry explains this restriction on your property rights is they say, well, we haven't actually sold this to you. We've only licensed it to you. There's a problem with that, though. The standard recording deal says that an artist gets 50% of all licensing revenue. So in other words, if a song is licensed for use in a commercial, half the money goes straight to the artist's pocket. However, a sale 
only gives to the artist an 8% royalty, much less than the, uh, uh, you know, one-sixth or less than the, um, than, the, uh, uh, than the licensing deal will. So although when you buy the music, it's characterized as a license, when they account for it to the artists, it's characterized as a sale. The Motion Picture Association is, is similar in its uh, incredible uh, uh, mistreatment of working filmmakers. Uh, you need look no further than a movie like Kirby Dick's This Film Is Not Yet Rated to find out how the MPA systematically undermines the efforts of the independent filmmakers who make up the, the backbone of American film uh, by using systematically using the rating system to lock certain people out of the box office out of theatrical distribution and how uh, their ability to do that in secrecy has seriously compromised the artistic freedom of America's working filmmakers. So in both cases, I think we see um, an example of an industry that, that fails to do anything for creative people and that at the same time sues their fans. And I kind of think of the, the suing your fan business model as being a little like the magic underpants gnome business model from South Park where Tweak, the caffeine-addicted kid, follows um, uh, the magic underpants gnomes who are stealing his underwear in the dead of the night down into their vasty underground lair, which is, um, which is dominated by a mountain of stolen underwear and a sign on the wall that says, Plan for world domination. Step one, collect underwear. Step two is blank. Step three, profit. And, and Tweak tries to get them to explain this, and they can't explain it to him because they don't know what their step two is. And it looks to me like the music industry's business model is step one, take everyone who used to be a music fan but defected because you were charging too much and delivering too little, and sue them into a smoking hole while simultaneously taking the people who haven't yet taken that step and treat them like criminals with anti-copying technology that presumes that they're up to no good. Step two, something happens. And step three, a chastened America returns to the mall, credit card in hand, ready to turn over their hard-worn money to the, to the music industry. I just, I just don't think that's plausible. I think the thing that dominates the music industry right now is the tension between old and new executives. You have older executives. Everyone knows that the music industry and the film industry need to change their business in order to survive the 21st century. However, the older executives understand that most of the ch people who try to change their companies will fail and go out of business. And so for them, the optimal strategy is to sit tight for five or ten more years until they can retire and walk away without having been the guy who killed Warners. The younger executives know that if they wait five or ten years, they won't have a job. And so you have young executives who grew up downloading and who want to just, you know, make stuff that makes sense to people who are their age are fighting their guts out with the older executives who are just sitting pat because that's their best strategy. Well, one of the things about the music recording industry is that technology has taken away one of the big sources of their profits was the money that they charged the bands themselves to record in these huge studios that are now you can get a laptop that does 90% of what a $5 million studio 10 years ago used to do. Well, I think this points to copyright doing what it's supposed to do. The point of copyright isn't to see to it that the most amount of money is made for one person or another. If that were true, then we would think the same of a copyright system that had one movie that made a trillion dollars and no other movies, or a billion movies that, when added up together, made a trillion dollars. I think that ultimately the point of copyright is to decentralize decision-making about culture and art. 
Before copyright, we had patronage. You could make art if the Pope said so. Copyright was supposed to make art into something that could be financed by any industrialist who'd pony up the bucks to pay for your production. Well, now that those production uh, uh, costs have fallen pretty much to zero, we don't need those people anymore. We don't need the industrialists anymore. Anyone can make art. And that's great news. And not just not just the production side of it, but the distribution side has As changed well, radically. Sure. You know, um, uh, with peer-to-peer, with MySpace, with YouTube, with, with um, uh, you know, Creative Commons, anyone can make a piece of work and share it with as many or as few people as they can find that are interested in it anywhere in the world without having to worry about breakage and shipping and handling and all the rest of that rot. Sure. I mean, U2, for example, doesn't, they don't need a record company anymore at this point, really. I mean, that's completely superfluous. They could just record their albums in their basement and distribute them from their basement. Two of my favorite bands are doing just that. They might be giants and bare naked ladies. That's pretty much their business model now. You give them $10 and they'll email you a password that lets you download their whole album in MP3. Um, You show up at their concert and for $25, they'll sell you a memory stick that has the whole album on it, plus the bonus tracks, plus the video, plus the audio from the last, the soundboard audio from the last concert they gave. you know, this is this this is I think what a lot of, of bands are doing. They're saying, Why settle for an eight percent royalty when we can get a hundred percent? You were teaching a class down in at USC, set top cops. I'd mm-hmm. like you to tell me a little bit about what that was about and who the set top cops are. Well, it was called Set Top Cop, Hollywood Secret War on Your Living Room. And it was a grad seminar, interdisciplinary grad seminar that had um, some cryptography, some, uh, uh, in, in terms of my students, I had cryptographers, international development people, people who were uh, learning to become record and film producers, and, and uh, uh, journalism people, and so on. And really what we talked about is how we got to where we are, where we're headed, what the promise is, and what the peril is in terms of technology and control. And so we talked a lot about WIPO and copyright treaties in the United Nations. We talked about John Philip Sousa and his talking machines. We talked about the history of the VCR and the history of copyright law, the statute of Anne, and the creation of technology standards, how treaties get drafted and how laws get made, um, how cryptography works and how security works. And it was a really good interdisciplinary course. I'm doing it again this semester for a younger group of students, undergraduates. Um, this, this semester I called the class Pwned. Everyone on campus is a copyright criminal. We've been speaking with Corey Doctorow. His new collection is Overclocked. Thank you for joining me, Corey. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.